Mark chapter 5, and we're commencing to read, please, from verse 1. Mark chapter 5, and commencing at verse 1. And they came over onto the other side of the sea, onto the country of the Gadarenes, and when he, Jesus, was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with chains, because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Now there, there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran violently down a steep place, into the sea. They were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. And come over with me then, jump to the verse 15. The neighbors, they came to Jesus and they did see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind And they were afraid. Amen. And we know God will bless this public reading of his inerrant word. Now let's unite together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this beautiful day and for all the blessings that, Lord, you afford us. We pray now, Lord, as we look at your precious word, that you would send the Holy Spirit in power, and that, Lord, your presence would be real in this place. We pray that you would put a hedge around us, a hedge of your divine power and presence. We pray, Lord, that you would put your hand on people's lives and that you would draw them irresistibly by the power of the Holy Spirit. I acknowledge my need, and so I give myself completely to you, Lord. Please cleanse my heart and fill me with the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that tonight your name would be glorified, and I pray that souls would be saved, backsliders restored, and your people would be built up in their most holy faith. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. I want to speak to you for a little time this evening on three worlds. Three worlds. One of the things that I was going to say amazes me, but it doesn't, is that most people in our country, in fact, most people in most countries, don't think. Very few people think themselves. I often say about young people today, their Bible is the television. They learn their morals and their standards from the television. Whatever the television presents as being normal, that's normal. And so whatever they listen to, but they don't think. They don't consider what life's all about, and they don't generally what we would call have a world view. Now, you ought to have a world view. That is a belief system as to where this world came from, where you came from, and where you're going if indeed there's anywhere to go. You need to have a world view. And thank God the Bible gives us a world view. And that worldview doesn't change. It stays the same. It's permanent because God's laws are permanent. So we have fixed solid laws that don't change from generation to generation because we have what is called moral absolutes. In other words, the Bible says it, God says it, that's it. It's non-negotiable. That's the view of the true Christian and the true follower of Christ. But I want to look a little with that in view of three worlds that are mentioned in the Bible, and some, if not all of them, you will be aware of. The first one is a pretty obvious one. It is the world that is around us. It is the physical world. This world that we're presently in. We connect with it by our senses. We see, we smell, we taste, we touch, and so forth. So we are connected with a physical world. I'm touching a lectern because this is a physical world. And this world has many traits of beauty, especially on a day like today. You look out at it and you say, that's a heavenly day. You look at the clouds and the blue sky, and then at night, uh, if it's going to be a good day tomorrow, maybe no clouds and a beautiful red sky, and then you see the beautiful stars and And there's just something so beautiful and so magnificent and glorious about this world. Now, we're told by scientists that this world happens to be in a position that if it was any closer to the sun, we would be burned. If it was any further away, we would freeze. It seems that everything about this world is perfect for human life, for human existence. We have the capability of breathing freely, which we couldn't do on any other planet, not even on the moon. It seems strange that out of all the planets and the galaxy, that this is the only one. It's the only one, certainly, that scientists have discovered, although I believe they're looking for God knows what in Mars. The Chinese are sending off their little 
um, robots and Americans and different ones, and they're all finding out, can we get to Mars and live? And some of the most educated people often prove themselves to be the greatest fools in that they say, we've got to consider, uh, you know, getting out of the Earth with all its problems of ecology. We need to get out of the Earth and get to Mars. Well, I couldn't think of anything worse than to go to Mars, to be honest with you. It's a six-month journey. You don't come back, and you can't take the mask off, and if you're in trouble anyway, well, you are in trouble. There's many people I could think of that I would encourage to go to Mars, but I'm not one of them. But we're so familiar with this world around us, we just take it for granted. Now, I want to read you a few verses regarding this, because it says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, when God had done all in way of creation... In verse 31, it says that God saw everything that he had made. Now, that's the stars, it's the animals, it's the trees, it's, it's everything, everything. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, I want you to grasp that, that it was very good. We can still see the remnants and the marks of that goodness that God saw. But here's where I want you to consider with me. In this physical world, there's something has gone wrong. Do you remember about 10 years ago, the great tsunami that hit Japan, and it just wiped tens of thousands of people out into the sea? That makes people afraid. It makes them concerned. The earth is not safe. You see, people that don't believe in God, they have every reason to be absolutely fixated with Greenpeace, with nuclear disarmament, with getting rid... I mean, these people are legitimate in their thinking. They are thinkers. Because they say we've got to get rid of all this stuff because if we don't, this world will not exist. We have enough nuclear energy to blow this world to kingdom come over and over again. If we let off a helium or a hydrogen bomb, it would evaporate the ocean. That's the capacity that these people are terrified. You say, Alan, are you terrified? Not in the least. Why are you not terrified? Because I'm a Christian. I'm not terrified because I've read the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and it doesn't tell me that man blows himself up and blows the world up. It tells me that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This world belongs to God, and the Bible tells us in Matthew's Gospel that events will happen in a future date where it looks as though there will be a nuclear holocaust, will take place on this earth, and God himself will step in. The Bible says, lest the earth be destroyed. God ultimately is in control. So I'm not in Greenpeace. I'm not into all this stuff. Because I have a God that I believe is in control of this world, a God that created this world. But you say, well, Alan, then you said God said it was good, but you're telling us about tsunamis. 
You're telling us about earthquakes. You're telling us about these terrible events that occur around the world. Well, well, if God made it good, is that what God made? No, that's not what God made. Something happened. And as a result of what happened, we are now in a present state of chaos. You see, my dear friends, God made it and it all was good, but Adam, God put him on probation and said, Adam, I'm going to give you a choice. You can choose either to follow me and love me and obey me or else you can become independent. But I must give you that freedom simply because if I force you to not eat the fruit, if I force you and and coerce you to obey me, then you will never truly love me. It's like me forcing my wife to marry me and saying you must marry me. There will never be love in the marriage. Because I controlled it all. People have to be given freedom to love. And God does that with every personality, every individual he has ever made. He's given us this amazing ability to make choices. And Adam was given that, and Eve was given that, and they took the wrong route. They said, let's go independent. Now, they weren't foolish enough to become atheists. After all, they had already had interaction with God every day. They weren't that naive. There was no point the devil telling them in the garden God doesn't exist. That one wasn't going to bite. The devil's very cute what he tells each generation and each person. No, he didn't say that. What he said to them was God does exist. And he is good. And he is kind because they knew it. But he said, listen, if you would take of the fruit, you would be like him. You would be your own boss. You would actually step up a bit. And they believed it. And the devil deceived them. And he has always had the gift of deception. And he's a master at it. And the Bible says that he deceiveth the whole world. That is some deception. This is no wee minor entity, my friends, with horns and a pitchfork. This is a masterful spiritual being that was in the heavens, that stood at the throne of God, was created by God, and was the anointed cherub. And the Bible says all his beautiful stones and all his beautiful being made by God, he looked at himself and there came a moment in eternity past when he saw himself and he said, you know, I'm going to be like God. I'm so wonderful, I'll usurp the throne. I'll take the throne of God. And the Bible says that God said, Thou shalt be brought down to hell. Jesus, when on earth, talked about this event because he, the eternal Son, who was ever with the Father, in the presence of the Father, was reminding the people of the event as he remembered it. And Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall like lightning. You see, dear friends, this is the problem with the earth. The problem with the earth today is that it's beautiful. But there are things about it that are not beautiful. There's something chaotic about it. And this is the great problem for humanity in understanding it. I bring to you the Christian view. 
And that Christian view is that sin entered the human race. That this diabolical entity called the devil, which God mentions in the word of God in Isaiah when he talks about his fall, and in other verses in Jeremiah and in the New Testament, Jesus had much to say about him. But they give us little glimmers, little insight, but they don't tell us everything. There's so much about the devil we don't know. There's so much about the kingdom of the devil that we don't know. But God gives us enough to understand and comprehend who this devil is and what his job is and how we as Christians can be overcomers. You see, my dear friends, the Bible says that when Adam had sinned, something happened. Let's look at it very briefly. In Genesis chapter 3, we read this, and I know most of you will be familiar with it, but there may be those who are listening, and they may not be familiar. But in Genesis 3.17, it says these words. God said to Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee thou shalt not eat, cursed is the ground for thy sake. My dear friends, here's the beginning of the chaos in the physical earth. Cursed be the ground. God cursed the ground. The earth that you stand on is cursed. And the more sin happens in a particular region, you will find the less productivity there will be on that land. Because curses are real. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. God said, it's going to bring immense sadness and problems into your life because this is something that Adam had not experienced before. The land had not been cursed when God made it because it was good. But now it's cursed. And Adam begins to enter into an experience that is new to him and that is a cursed, chaotic earth that we are all familiar with. It shall bring forth thistles and thorns, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. God talks about the curse on the earth, and then the impact on Adam himself, that he would return to the ground, for he was cursed under the curse of sin. You see, my dear friends, this world is impacted presently by sin. And we have done much to advance society in that we have running hot water and electricity and we have caught and captured many of the diseases that killed and wiped out our ancestors and those before us. But however, it can never be conquered. These issues can never be resolved. Scientists and clever people can do all they can to make this a utopia. It cannot happen, my friend. One only has to go into an average church to see, to see the masks on to be reminded that something's wrong. You see, we are in a cursed earth. Whenever in Ecclesiastes, whenever the uh, song of, or whenever Solomon was writing in the book of Ecclesiastes, he started with these words: "Vanity of vanities, all is vanity." 
He then proceeded to talk about the earth, and he talked about the sun and water and clouds, and he talked about the sun rushing to rise in the morning and then going round, and then he says when it, dis- when it goes down behind and it hides behind the horizon, it chases round to get back up again. And he, he paints this beautiful picture of an earth not only chaotic, but an earth that is frustrated. This earth is frustrated. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about that when he says that the whole earth and all creation is groaning. Everything's groaning. And when one considers what he says, one can only think of earthquakes as the crust of the earth groans and crushes into itself. What is it groaning for? The Bible says it is yearning. It is yearning for hope. It is yearning to be released from the curse. It is longing to be free for the purpose for which God created it. For my dear friends, this earth is eternal. This earth will not pass away. It will be renovated by fire, Peter tells us. God is going to clean it. It's going to be a different earth, but it's the same earth. That's our first world. That's our first world. You see, my dear friends, the atheist today, if you met him, he would say, well, you see the picture that you've painted, that's the proof that there's no God. Look at it, it's chaotic. There's people killing each other. Look at There's no God. There's no God. And they look through the lens, the narrow lens of what's happening in present, but they have no explanation as to how this happened. And their greatest dilemma, and one that you have to consider whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, is not only the physical realm, but the interaction of the spirit realm to this realm. You say, what do you mean, Alan? Sometimes I watch programs on television. I find them fascinating about, about people who go into homes where there are supposedly spirits or demons or entities or whatever, And these people are not Christians. They know nothing about God. But I can tell you, they encounter things. And on many occasions, I have been in situations, especially when I was a younger Christian, where I went into situations or into an environment where I felt evil. Now, nobody could take that from me. I felt it. I was aware of a dark entity. I was aware of a presence. Now, you don't need to be a Christian to believe this. Unsaved people get this. Because their spirit, which is dead to God, their spirit is still alive to the spirit world, and so they're able to interact, and they can tell there's a bad presence here, and they stay away from it. What's your answer to that? Ah, but then, my dear friends, there's this other presence. And I first truly encountered it whenever I was 17. And not that many miles from here, there was a tent mission and an evangelist came and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. He told us about the love of God. He told us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He told us that this son of God, the Lord Jesus, had died for sinners. And if sinners would repent, they would be saved. I was thrilled with the message. I was taken with the evangelist. But the overwhelming thing was this presence that was in the tent. This presence that I couldn't identify. But my dear friends, I loved this presence. 
I felt so secure. I felt so loved. I felt so surrounded. I felt so safe. I didn't know then. I know now, mature as a Christian, that it was the presence of the Holy Spirit. And truly, as the hymn writer said, where Jesus is, tis heaven there. Sure, some of you have been in prayer meetings where the presence of God came down in power. Ah, my dear friends, it's just like a step to heaven. (laughs) That's real. That's real. Nobody can deny it. So we have the world around us, the external world. But then we have the world within us. The world within us. My dear friends, it's the internal world. I spend a lot of time talking to people. There's hardly a day goes by in my life that people don't come to see me for one reason or another. And one of the things that moves me as an individual is that I have realized more and more that every individual has their own personal world. It's always unique. It's always different. There's nobody else like that person. The experiences they have are all different. They're all so, so unique. But they're all separate worlds. And I see a multitude of worlds just sitting in front of me. Worlds that are amazing. Contained in each person. You see, my dear friends, that's why I read to you about this man in Mark chapter 5. I want to point out to you that not only has something gone wrong with the physical world, the external world, but what you should understand is that something more significant has gone wrong in the internal world. I hope that you have got to the place already where you're beginning to realize and recognize there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me. And when we look at Adam, we see this perfect creation made in the image of God. Every evening he comes to God and God comes to him and they share in fellowship and he has no fear. He has no, there's no threat of death. He's enjoying life to the full and he's living off the presence of God and God's giving him gifts. He give him a wife, he give him a home. God's just giving to him and, and it's a really wonderful thing. In fact, it's the utopia for any person on the earth, any person you met tonight who's not a Christian, and you said to them, listen, if I told you it was possible that there's a God who's all-powerful and he loves you with all his heart and he would forgive you anything you've done wrong, bring you into a relationship with you, bring him in, you into a relationship with him, and then he would bless you and keep you and surround you and fill you with love and meet all your needs, and he'd do that for eternity, they would say that is utopia. My friend, that's the Christian message. That is the Christian message. God has come to inhabit men and women. To gain them back from the power of sin so that they can be his and his forever. You see, this man we find had so many problems. He was was certainly very, very, very different to Adam. Something, you see, my friend, something has gone so wrong. And why I chose him in our reading of a scripture is simply because I want you to see the two extremes. 
I want you to see when God made Adam and it was good. And I want you to see what happens whenever sin and human nature and the devil have their part to play in a life. I want you to see it. Let's look at this man who was made in the image of God and what the Bible has to say about him. In Mark in chapter 5, it says these words. Whenever the Lord stepped out of this boat, a man came running to him. Now, this man had his own world. I want you to get that. He had his own internal world. But my friend, let me assure you, you don't want his world. You don't want his world. This man's world is unenviable, and I'll show you why. Because as he runs to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that he was living in the graveyard. He was somehow fixated with death and probably suicide. And every form of destruction that should come, you see, when Adam was created, everything in Adam didn't want death. Adam, death was foreign to man. God said the curse would bring death, but Adam wasn't designed. And that's why if you go to hospital, nobody wants to die. Nobody wants to die. Why? Because we're not designed to die. We're designed to live. We're made in the image of God. But what happened was, this man now has got so somehow under the control of this power, this entity called the devil that Jesus and God talked about, he has become so, so gripped by this powerful entity, the devil, that this man now is fixated on death. He's drawn to death. He seems to get comfort in death. My friends, that was the evidence that this man had absolutely no life. And Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. But this man is fixated on death. I want to tell you, my dear friends, if you're being drawn toward death, if you have strong pullings toward death or harming yourself in some way, that primarily behind that there is some demonic, powerful entity working over your life. I want to tell you that. This man was not only fixated with death, but the Bible says he couldn't be held with chains. Now that tells me that this man was not only an ordinary man, but in a sense, he was like Samson, although he looked like an ordinary man. There were certain times when he got excessive power and he was able to break chains off. This is not natural, my friends. This is not natural. This is supernatural. This man has supernatural power to break chains. The same way as, as, as Samson, when anointed with the Holy Spirit, he broke chains as well. But his chains were broke off by the power of the Holy Spirit. This man was breaking chains by the power of the devil. And so he has supernatural strength. People are terrified of him. And the Bible says that he tore them asunder and the, the, the fetters were broken in pieces and no man could tame him. 
You can bring whatever psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors, you can bring them all to this man, but my dear friends, it is not going to work. You may, if you get the strong enough chains and maybe get enough tablets into this man, you may put him into some kind of stupor and get him sedated, but you can't break that power that's holding him. Because it's the power of the devil that's in the man. How did it get into him? I don't know. But I suspect, my dear friends, bad things happened to him when he was young. Let me tell you, you don't just end up like this. Things happen in your life to end up like this. The devil can't simply step in and take total possession. There is a gradual gathering of momentum in a person's life until the person is overwhelmed by the devil. Now, this is an extreme case. But the principle still applies in the life of every man and woman that has ever walked this earth. And so this poor man, this poor man, he's always night and day in the mountains and the tombs crying. My dear friends, there's no joy. (laughs) No joy. This man's always crying. This man is tormented. He's tormented. And let me say in the passing, if you happen to have somebody that you don't like, and there's somebody that you have said, I'll never forgive them, you already will be beginning to experience the tormentors that Jesus spoke of. It's in your interest to forgive everybody and to bless your enemies, let me tell you. But this man has gone so far that he's tormented. Ah, but listen, friends. In today's society, there has never been such an influx and overflow of young people self-harming. Self-harming. I have prayed on many occasions with young people with self-harm. And on every occasion, it was a demonic spirit that was inside that young person. Got in through a variety of means, but that's what it is. It's nothing new, my friends. The devil is still the devil. The devil's still the devil. He still utilizes the same methods as he did in the days of Jesus. And this man was cutting himself because he had such emotional pain and trauma in him. The only way he could find relief was by cutting himself. And anyone who is self-harmed will understand that. You can put big slants and big titles and big letters on it if you're a psychiatrist. But let me tell you, dear friends, self-harming at the end is the devil. It's the devil. And the person is not to be beaten or to be trampled down, but they are to receive the love and grace and mercy of God who can come and heal them from their hearts and set them free from the power of the devil. The gospel is liberating. The gospel of Jesus Christ sets men and women free. It heals them in their body. It heals their mind. It sets them free. That's the kind of gospel we need today. And thank God it's still the same, whether we preach it or not. This poor man cried out in his terrible torment. But I want you to notice, friends, that although he was the extreme antithesis of everything that Adam was, what happened to him? 
You see, my dear friend, he was broken. And he was on a trajectory that was leading directly to destruction. Anybody with common sense would have looked out and said, where is this man going to end up? Where will this end? Nobody could help him. All the men of the city, all the wise men, all the clever men, all the doctors, all the people with know-how had all tried their bit and thrown their pennies worth in. And it was, it was no use. Nothing we can do. But I want you to notice something. One of the worst cases in the Bible, the man of Gadara. One day a man steps out of a boat. And he puts his foot on the shore... And something rises up inside this man. It's not the man himself. It's the thing inside him. It's called legion, which is a multiplicity of evil spirits under the term legion. And they all rise up in him. And I'll tell you why they rise. Because they're afraid of this man that's on the shore. They have already tried to kill him. All the devil's kingdom has risen to try and drown him and his disciples in the boat. But he's the Lord. He's the Lord. And he arrives on the shore, and as he's walking, he begins to speak. And my dear friend, that legion, thousands of spirits, every one of them acknowledge that he is Lord. And this is what they say, why have you come to torment us? You are the son of the living God. (laughs) Boy, they knew who he was. You are the son of the living God. Demons have more sense than Christians. They have more insight than Christians. They have more faith of than Christians. Doesn't do them any good. But my dear friends, when Jesus spoke to these spirits, he told them to go. They pleaded for him to let them go into the pigs, which he permitted them to do. And he sent them out. And then all the people came, the doctors, The boys that had got the ropes, the men that had forged the chains, they all said, come to see him. There's something happened, the boy that's mad. Come to the cemetery. Word has got out. The madman, the naked man, the cursing man, the blaspheming man, the fierce man. Come and see him. And the Bible says when they all came, they saw him sitting. Clothed. And in his right mind. (laughs) What happened? The man who met him, the Lord Jesus Christ, destroyed the power of the devil in his life. The Lord Jesus gave him back his mind. The Lord Jesus gave him clothing. He gave him back his dignity. He gave him back purpose. He gave him everything that he needed. Because that's the kind of God we worship. You see, my dear friends, my worldview of this world, I'm not just believing and thinking something because I've read it, because I was told it, because my fathers believed it, or my grandfather, or it was taught in my ancestry. No, I'm teaching it because I know in my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because he came into my heart 40 years ago. He saved my soul. He has forgiven my sin. I know I'm his child, and I know I'm ready for heaven because of his great grace and mercy. And just as he redeemed and had mercy on that Gadara man, so he had it on me. And he can have it on you as well. Well, let's close. You see, friends, there's not only the world around us. 
And there's not only the world within us, but there's the world to come. The Lord Jesus, when speaking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to the religious leaders of his day, he said, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness for you in this world or in the world to come. Jesus said, there is a world to come. It's what we call the eternal world. It was the one that Jesus focused on so much when he was on earth. It was the one that he told us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He always was focusing people to look to the eternal kingdom because the earth passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You see, my dear friends, when the disciples were very discouraged knowing the Lord was going, he again alluded to them, and we've often heard it, haven't we? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you will be also. Oh, my dear friends, there's another world, the eternal world. And Jesus spoke of very two clear destinies. One was heaven and the other was hell. I want to challenge you as I draw this meeting to a close. What do you think about this man that met the man of Gadara? What's your world view? How are things with you if you haven't met this man? I want to tell you, no matter how cosmetically good you look tonight with being dressed up and washed, I want to tell you, my dear friends, although I cannot see your heart, God in heaven can. And the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That God can see your heart is as black as hell. And God can see that your heart is full of every evil and every every possibility of evil in its seed form is inside you tonight. For Jesus said, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Oh, the heart, my friend, is sinful and deceitful. But I want to conclude. You see, friends, the grounds upon which you can be forgiven tonight and that you can be free from whatever it may be that the devil has over you, whether your sin or hurts, whatever it might be, where the devil has the hold over your life, I want to tell you there's only one person who can break it, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he proved his love for you on the cross when he, 2,000 years ago, went to an old hillside called Calvary. 
And on that old tree outside the walls of Jerusalem, they took him and they nailed him by the hands and feet. They had beat his back until it was like a ploughed field, and they hung him naked and suspended him between heaven and earth. And there God the Son, the man who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, the man who raised the dead, the God-man, the man who had no sin in him, the man who was the answer to all earth's problems, man crucified him. He crucified him. And when man had done all that he could, a darkness covered the whole earth. And then God took over. And God the Father brought a darkness. And in that darkness, God made Christ's soul an offering for sin. And Christ became your substitute. He died in your place. The Bible said he died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God, that he was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. I want to say to you in closing, what are you going to do with this man? For neutral you cannot be. Don't say, Alan, I'm walking out tonight, I'm on the fence. No, you're not on the fence. My dear friend, in your heart there is a register before God. It is either yes or it is no. A Scandinavian atheist many years ago, in mockery of the Bible and the things of God, left in his will that all his assets be left to the devil. The solicitors had a problem in understanding what they should do with the assets, seeing that they all had been left to the devil. And after talking to attorneys and barristers and attempting to resolve the issue, they came to the conclusion that they would do nothing. To simply give it to the devil was to do nothing. My friend, that's all you have to do to go to the devil. Do nothing. A little boy on one occasion was lost in an American town. He asked a man of the city... How he could get to his home, he only could remember the estate where he lived, but he didn't know all the details. The man, knowing the region, said to him, Son, he said, if you go up that street there, you'll go past the parlor, the ice cream parlor. And then he said, you'll walk down another long street, and if you just turn left, he says, you'll see Calvary's Chapel. The little boy shouted out, he said, Oh, sir, just tell me again how to get to Calvary, and I'll get home. My friend, you have to come to Calvary. You have to come to that place where Jesus shed his blood for you on the cross. He says in his word, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. He says in his word, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. My dear friend, you must come to the cross of Christ and you must repent. 
You can do it in this church tonight. You can do it where you sit. If you mean it with all your heart and God the Holy Spirit speaks into your heart and you say, God, I realize you do exist. I realize I am a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin and I'm prepared to turn from it. I really want to be a Christian. I want to follow you all the days of my life. I want to turn my back on all my sin. And I want you to be Lord of my life. If that's where you are tonight, you you can come to him tonight. And I want to tell you just as he met the man of Gadara, he'll meet you. And he'll save you. And he'll make you his child.